0: ...and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Our health is incredibly vital. And if we're not taking care of our health, the rest of our life can suffer as a result... My next guest, I am super, super excited about and to share the incredible wisdom and the advice that this man. Uh, shares a lot of. His name is Dr. David Perlmutter. Now, maybe that name rings a bell for some of you. Maybe it doesn't. But he is the New York Times bestselling author of five books. He's a board-certified neurologist. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition as well. He received his MD degree from the University of Miami School of Medicine where he was awarded the Leonard G. Roundtree Research Award. He serves as a member of the editorial board for the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and has published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals, including Archives of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and the Journal of Applied Nutrition. In addition, he is a frequent lecturer of uh, symposia sponsored by uh, institutions such as the World Bank and IMF, Columbia University, Scripps Institute. So pretty much this man is... Uh, well-researched, he's, he's got a lot of degrees and he can be entrusted with the things that he does say. His books have been published in, get this, 32 languages uh, and they include the number one New York Times bestseller, Grain Brain, The Surprising Truth About Wheat, Carbs and Sugar with over 1 million copies of that book in print. Uh, the, his other New York Times bestsellers, Brain, Ma- Brain Maker, uh, The Grain Brain Cookbook. Imagine saying that a million times over. Uh, the Grain Brain Whole Life Plan, The Brainwash, co written by his son, Austin Perlmutter. He is the editor of The Microbiome and The Brain authored by top experts in the field and published, which was published in December of 2019. His latest book is called Drop Acid, which focuses on the pivotal role that uric acid has in our metabolic diseases. And it is such a fascinating conversation because this little thing, uric acid, has a huge impact on our overall health, our metabolisms, you name it. And it kind of surprised me as I was learning about it. And uh, yeah, this was such a fascinating conversation that I know you guys are going to get a lot out of. Dr. Perlmutter is a man full of wisdom that he was very gracious enough to share so much of during this conversation. But if you do get something from it, please share it around to all your friends and your family. Let everyone know about this one. Also, don't forget to leave a rating and review and subscribe before you leave as well. All right, my friends, you know what time it is, time to drop acid, that is uric acid, Uh, as we journey into this story box today and listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice and the stories of none other than Dr. David Belmutter. I am
1: so delighted to be here, and uh, as you were talking, I am just thinking how great this virtual uh, interaction has become, you know, it it used to require a trip to to, uh, Australia or wherever the podcast or the interview was, and this is really great.
0: It really is, it's a huge blessing, and I'm grateful that I get to connect with you all the way over, I'm not sure where you are, whereabouts are you hailing from? I'm in Florida. Ah, I'm jealous already. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <There you go. laughs> the the lucky state they call it. <laughs> I,
1: I don't know who does, but uh, I'm happy to be here right now anyway.
0: Well, it's honestly amazing to have you here. So, and and like I was saying in the intro, your work is, is really helpful. It's helped a number of people, including myself all the way here in Sydney, Australia. So I just want to say firstly, thank you so much for all the work that you're doing and keep doing as well. Your your new book, Drop Acid, which I'm very, very excited to speak with you more about in just a moment. But before we do, my very first question for you that I normally ask all my guests before we officially dive in is what does success look like for you? I think success is two two
1: parts. I think it is identifying your skill set, number one, and number two, exploiting that skill set as best you can.
0: When was the moment for you that you realized that this in fact was success has it been like this gradual thing over the course of your life or was there more of a catalyst moment somewhere
1: So for me identifying my skill set was the ability that I have to take information and present it to people who can use that information I've identified that as being my skill set, and part two, that's what I've, I've dedicated my life to doing. And I have to say, probably when I was 19, I gave my first talk at the American Heart Association Stroke Council to 500 doctors, uh, based on the work I had done uh, exploring the, the human brain with a microscope, so that we could make build basically a roadmap uh, for microsurgery in the brain. And we were the first to really uh, chart out some really fine architecture of the blood vessels so that when uh, somebody was having a brain operation for something like an aneurysm, that surgeons would have a better idea where they were going, looking through a microscope, not just looking you know, grossly at, at the brain. So I got a taste of it at that point, And I, I really loved it. I mean, I had to rehearse that talk time and time again with the department chairman. But when I finally got up there, I I was talking to myself saying, what are we doing here? You know, what's this all about? And I settled in and really enjoyed this connection. I had a little tiny microscopic bit of information to transmit, yet it was, in my opinion, important. And the idea that I could transmit that information to people who were wanting to hear it uh, really made me feel like I was onto something in terms of giving my life purpose.
0: Have you always wanted to be, or did you always want to be a doctor growing up? Or was this something like unexpected for you?
1: (laughs) The answer is yes, though. I tried to fight it. Um, My first year, uh, freshman year in college, I was a business major. Uh, But I think, you know, I was destined to be a doctor from, gosh, holding brain retractors when I was 13 years old in the operating room for my father, uh, when I was a little boy, you know, he was always busy doing brain operations. And so that if I was going to hang out with my dad, that's where it was, it had to be in the operating room. So he said, Hey, come along. And I would spend my Saturday morning in the operating room holding retractors so he could take out brain tumors and, and mm-hmm. who knows what, when I was, gosh, I was a little kid. I had to stand on two stools back then. And, um, yeah, so I, I think that was really pretty much my destiny from,
0: from an early age. That is crazy. So you were literally a little kid getting to see the open, the insides of a human brain <laughs> growing up. Yeah, when I was, f- I
1: think, around five years old, my mother took a piece of cardboard and punched holes in it, gave me a, um, a piece of yarn and told me to start practicing uh, sewing and tying my knots so that once I got into the operating room when I was much older, I would know how to do it. Can you imagine? I mean, so I guess that they, they they definitely had uh had, had some ideas about what I would become. That is insane. <laughs> and I've never told that story before. I don't even think I've mentioned that to my wife before, but it just can't re- I just was reminded of it.
0: That is such a cool story. I mean, and did that sort of like that having I guess the experience with your father growing up mainly around the brain. Was that something that you or was it another area of the body that you wanted to study? Or was it just no, there was was
1: no other area of the body. I mean, we would, uh, you know, I'm one of five children. And if you know, my dad made it home on time for dinner, we would be quizzed on all kinds of brain related issues. I mean, you know, I remember him, uh, uh, you know, describing these very bizarre Uh, neurological diseases that were, you know, related to, um, you know, drinking red wine in Italian men, how their corpus callosum would degenerate uh, and, you know, all these things. And we had to know this stuff when we were little kids. So, (laughs) hey, I mean, I'm not saying it was bad, but I I had plenty of time to do things that kids do growing up. That's for darn sure. But you know what? It's uh, my son. Our son is a, a, a medical doctor as well, internal medicine so he's third generation already. And um, gosh, you know, think of the start that he got. I mean, he watched me, he watched his grandfather, and now he's an internal medicine doctor exploring all kinds of really
0: cool stuff. So yeah, things could be worse. I have a curious question, speaking about the brain, because you grew up looking at brains, the knowledge of brains. I guess the, the whole idea of neurology fascinates me uh, a lot. <laughs> um, have you noticed from when you were a kid to up to the point now that there's been a, a drastic changes in the brain? Or is it sort of like, uh, are we headed to healthier brains, worse off brain? Oh, okay. I, I, there's
1: certainly been a dramatic change in our understanding of the brain, even in very, very recent years. Uh, I think overall, uh, at least in the past uh, you know, several hundred years, uh, that brain, the, the size of the human brain is decreasing. I think the metabolic problems that we're gonna get into today that have become so pervasive around the world are profoundly threatening uh, for the brain and may well explain this incredibly uh, robust increase in prevalence of things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So I think overall brain health is declining dramatically and rapidly and it's not a genetic issue, it's really a consequence of our lifestyle choices.
0: So why are some of the reasons, is it mainly because of our lifestyle choices, our diets, that our brains are shrinking? Yes. I mean, nothing has
1: changed in our bodies genetically, but what has changed, interestingly, is our relationship with our DNA. Right. You know, recognize that our genome, the human genome, evolved over tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, to allow us the ability to survive. but The survival is in the context of a pretty narrow environment, our hunter gatherer environment, the environment of our uh, even our primate ancestors, far different from the environment uh, that we find ourselves in today. And you know, I I don't know if you meant to do this, but that's the segue into the new book uh, because it really talks about how these genetic adaptations that allowed us to survive. Uh, For example, the ability to make more body fat in the presence of eating fruit and getting that sugar, fructose, as a signal, to make just a little bit more body fat because genetically we had a mutation allowed us to survive, to just in a small amount increase our blood pressure, allowing us not to become uh, dehydrated. That allowed us to create more sugar in our bloodstream to power our brilliant brain that allowed us to be clever enough to survive. These changes took place as a consequence of a series of genetic mutations that took place between 14 and 17 million years ago, not even in humans, in our primate ancestors at a time when the world became cooler. And that cooling of the planet took place over about a million years. So this isn't an overnight uh, event. This happened over a million years planet becomes cooler, our primate ancestors had some what we call selection pressure. Those who had these genetic mutations that caused them to have higher levels of something very specific called uric acid would make a little bit more fat. They would burn a little less fat. They'd make more blood sugar. They'd raise their blood pressure a little bit, but it was enough that they would survive and pass on those new mutations that raised the uric acid level. And we continue to have uh, those mutations in every human walking the planet today. This is a genetic situation that responds to a sugar, fructose, such that even tiny amounts of fructose are telling us get ready because food may not be available, water may not be available, and therefore make body fat so that you can survive. But now we're triggering that mechanism by bombarding our bodies with fructose day and night. So we're making way too much fat, Uh, our blood pressure is going through the roof, we're making way too much blood sugar, therefore we're becoming diabetic like nobody's business, and all the downstream problems from being overweight and hypertensive and diabetic, like coronary artery disease, uh, Alzheimer's, and even various forms of cancer, are dramatically on the rise as a downstream effect of this uh, genetic mismatch to our environment, what we call an evolutionary environmental mismatch. So, you know, I've been interested in that for, I wrote my first article on this topic uh, 50 years ago when I was 16, uh, published in what's called the Miami Herald. And I called attention to us, you know, living today with this, what I called then, uh, outdated machinery, meaning that our bodies can't adapt to the current uh, environment of high sugar, not enough sleep, not enough physical activity, not enough cognitive challenge, not enough socialization. All the things that are so different in a relatively short time span that hasn't allowed us to, to physically and genetically adapt. So in a very real sense then, uh, Alzheimer's is a genetic issue. You know, normally we say that G- uh, Alzheimer's is maybe 5% genetic. In a very real sense, it's 100% genetic when we consider that the mismatch of our current environment with our paleolithic genome is really setting the stage for the inflammation, the increased damage to uh, to our tissues from chemicals called free radicals, the elevation of our blood sugar. All those things really are the cornerstones of things like Alzheimer's and coronary artery disease. And it's just a consequence of this mismatch of Our current lifestyle and our genome that's that's the foundation of the so-called paleo movement where you know if we can emulate the environment of our paleo paleolithic ancestors we would realize better health do i believe that 100 yeah
0: there's a lot for me to sort of unpack with that that response i've got quite a few questions coming from that but i want to go A little bit back a bit and sort of provide my audience a little bit of context so speaking about our ancestors uh over the course of time it looks like we've gotten progressively worse i think sometimes or uh, nowadays uh i hope that we're getting a little bit better with education like yourself giving us all the information that we need but why is it that we've gone okay from our ancestors being healthy being okay and then all of a sudden we've we've progress down this catastrophic uh side of life where we're unhealthy we're overweight we've got diabetes we've got alzheimer's we've got all kinds of diseases that are killing us or killing a lot of people rather quickly and our immune systems are, are struggling to keep up so why is it that we've gone so progressively bad over the course of of years if we if we know and i think i was taught this in school right that our ancestors, you know, were healthier. They lived off the land. They did what they needed to do, and they didn't have a lot of the issues that we have now. So, I don't know if you can answer this question, but oh, I, yeah. I
1: absolutely can answer the question because, uh, you know, we. I think the answer is very, very clear. That there are really two major events in human history that uh, are applicable uh, to responding to you right now. First was the development of agriculture. that represented you know when was it 14 to seventeen thousand years ago represented a major major challenge to our human physiology never before did we have the resources of these uh, carbohydrates that allowed us to travel allowed us to you know to uh, populate the world but beyond that prior to that we had eaten a lot more fat and uh certainly a a lot uh, more fiber than we do currently the other event Ah, uh, that happened was I think our ability to process foods, which happened the past hundred to two hundred years, yeah. especially the creation of uh, our ability to extract um, sugar from sugarcane. That happened, um, you know, in Egypt, let's say seventeen hundred years ago, uh, and then more recently, uh, in the development in 1958 of our ability to actually make uh, high fructose corn syrup from obviously corn. So these are major, these are seminal events in, uh, that explain the decline in human health. You know, longevity uh, began to decline for the first time in human history prior to COVID. Mm. So yes, with COVID, it's declined quite precipitously, but even before COVID here in America, uh, average length of life has began to uh, had begun to decline. Mm. And it really, uh, it wasn't that we suddenly had a genetic uh, change, our genome, has basically undergone very, very little change in the past 70,000 years. What has changed are the influences that, that I mentioned, You know, specifically the foods that we are eating. Uh, food is information, food plays against our genome, it's reflected by our genome, it triggers our, our genome, good genes turn on or off based upon influences from the foods that we eat. Mm-hmm. So we have to deconstruct our foods beyond the macronutrients of fat, carbohydrates and protein and the micronutrients, the minerals and vitamins and understand that food is information. Food is signaling our genome, giving it instructions, informing our genome and informing our physiology about the environment in which we we live. So Mm -hmm. what were once advantages as it relates to food by giving us more body fat, allowing us to retain water uh, during times of possible dehydration, et cetera, now in the presence of an abundance of these signaling molecules like fructose uh, is playing absolutely against us. So mm-hmm. no mystery. You know we've come a long way in terms of uh, early childhood death, j- death during childbirth, uh, our ability to take care of patients who have experienced trauma. I mean that's the past you know 100 years, that's the past 50 years been dramatic. Uh, But what has taken place has been an incredible increase in what are called the chronic degenerative conditions, Mm -hmm. the diabetes, obesity, hypertension, all these metabolic issues that the World Health Organization now characterizes as being the number one cause of death on planet Earth. Not COVID, not something infectious, chronic degenerative, meaning metabolic problems that are a reflection a consequence of the dramatic change in our, our lifestyles that has occurred in the past 150 200 years
0: the kind of food that we do end up in taking say if it's all this junk food does that have the ability to change our dna in the way that or our genome code in the way that it provides or gives off like cancers dementia those sorts of genes it doesn't actually change
1: the code, but it changes the expression of the code. Right. Uh, the the piano has eighty eight keys, and it can be played in any number of ways. So how the piano is actually played is dictated by the foods we eat, by the sleep that we get or don't get, exercise, stress, uh, various fa- nature exposure. All of these things influence how the song is played. We're not necessarily changing the genetic code, but we are epigenetically changing its expression by turning on and turning off various genes. There are genes that when they are turned off are, are good thing that they're turned off because they code for increased inflammation and and problems. Other genes, when they're turned on, offer us uh, some advantages by act- turning on the production of antioxidants, for example. Yeah. So it's the balance, you know, It's it's this, dance that occurs in terms of genes turning on and turning off every moment of every day that really has a major role to play in our health and longevity. Mm -hmm. And probably 90% of those genes are influenced by the choices we make every day in -hmm. terms of, for example, our foods. Now that's a pretty profound thought, isn't it? You know, when I was in medical school, our DNA was locked in a glass case it was inviolate, Nothing, you know, it, it determined everything about us, who we'd be, et cetera. And now we recognize that in fact, our DNA is highly influenced by so many of the activities that we choose to pursue every single day.
0: What is the, because I'm I'm sure that there are, um, a number of my friends have spoken about this, the, the varying degree of diets that we have in our world today, it gets kind of confusing. I think my audience, they know, um, my stance on this, <laughs> uh, I I pre- predominantly healthy. I try my best to to try and avoid the the gut inflammation, all those sorts of things. But I feel like there is a lot of information out there for people uh, to absorb, and I I kind of feel like they're getting lost a little bit on which is the right oh, yeah, yeah. diet to subscribe to, which is the healthier diet, because we've been told one thing and then told another thing. This is right. This is wrong. So what is the right, according to science, according to research, what has science and research shown us that is beneficial first and foremost for that uh, epigenetic construct, as well as our overall health and avoiding this uric acid?
1: (laughs) Well, uh, in your very last statement there, I I think you said a lot because This new tool that we have called balancing or or stabilizing or normalizing, I tend tend to think of a term optimizing Mm -hmm. uh, uric acid is really interesting because you can see, you can look at this uric acid issue through any number of lenses, through paleo, through Mediterranean, through ketogenic, through vegan whatever is your bent or your desire for whatever reason it may be, uh, it can still be modified such that it targets uric acid because it's uric acid that serves as the common denominator, the alarm signal that then leads to increasing inflammation and increasing blood sugar, increasing production and storage of body fat, for example, increasing blood sugar. Um, there was an interesting study in the Japanese literature called uric acid in metabolic disease from innocent bystander to central player. Meaning we've known that uric acid elevation uh, is seen in diabetes obesity, coronary artery disease, Alzheimer's, et cetera. But it was looked upon as well, it happens to be elevated. Obviously, uric acid has to do with gout, but how interesting it is that we see it elevated in these you know, devastating conditions. But this uh, 2016 uh, paper really shows us that it's not that it just happens to be elevated, it's playing a role and it's playing a pivotal role. So there are many answers to the question about what makes for an optimal diet. But the point is we want to Have a diet that in J, in you specifically, accomplishes certain goals. What are the goals? Number one, it reduces inflammation, a pivotal player in our chronic degenerative conditions. Did I mention the number one cause of death on the planet? Uh, Number two, it helps to quench the action of damaging chemicals that we call free radicals. Uh, Number three, it's a diet that's rich in micronutrients like vitamins and minerals. Uh, Number four, it's a diet that's going to help keep blood sugar in check. All of those things uh, can be looked at, again, through the lens of what are the modifications of the diet that you subscribe to that seems to be working best for you, but how it relates to keeping uric acid at an optimal level. Mediterranean diet, wonderful diet, for example, but to that diet, we would make sure that while you're eating some fruit, you're not eating an overabundance because fruit does contain fruit sugar or fructose. Fructose is metabolized to uric acid. It means have an apple a day or two. It means don't be drinking fruit juice and certainly not uh, sodas and beverages that are just loaded with fructose. Fructose becomes uric acid and that's the alarm signal that saved our ancestors, but is paving the way for metabolic mayhem today. Uric acid is the thing. Uh, that uh, when brought under control, lets people finally get that last part of their weight loss under control, that Mm. may allow them better control over their blood pressure, that may allow them better control over their blood sugar. All of these metabolic issues that are so threatening uh, to people today. I mean, uh, here in America, uh, 88% of adults has at least one component of what we call the metabolic syndrome, meaning Mm -hmm. overweight, uh, high blood sugar, uh, high blood pressure, high triglycerides, or what we call dyslipidemia, means trouble with things like good and bad cholesterol. 88%, that means only one in eight adults in America, and I'm sure the numbers are similar in Australia, only one in eight adults is metabolically healthy. Wow. Uh, Metabolic issues, set the stage for all the problems we don't want to get like Alzheimer's, coronary heart disease, diabetes, and various forms of cancer. Yeah. So we've got to get our metabolic house in order. And the best way to do that right now is to bring the uric acid level under control.
0: Yeah. Where does uric acid specifically come from? Has it always been there the moment we're born? And there's a leading question from that one, which is in which, uh, part of the metabolism or the digestive tract? does it usually sit? Is it the final stage, the middle stage, that sort of thing?
1: So the uric acid is actually mostly produced in the liver. Oh. And uh, though we now have evidence that it can be produced uh, in the kidneys uh, and possibly even in the gut as well. Uh, but by and large, the discussion centers on fructose sugar being absorbed in the small intestine, taken to the liver, and then Uh, broken down ultimately to its final resting point, which is uric acid. Now, other contributors to that include alcohol and then foods that are high in something called purines. Purines are uh, the breakdown products of DNA and RNA, uh, foods that have a lot of cellularity, like uh, organ meats, for example, and cured meats. Uh, They are high in purines. They can contribute to the formation of uric acid. It's why people who have gout Mm-hmm. high uric acid levels should be careful of you know eating high purine containing foods but the big player by far and away is dietary fructose now i will say that you know we've emphasized dietary fructose for an awful long time in terms of its metabolic threat we've known that fructose is a threat to our metabolic health since uh, an, a lancet article in 1970 so we've known about this a long time, but now we're beginning to understand that under certain conditions, the body will make its own fructose and that is somewhat worrisome. So under certain conditions, when the body thinks it needs fat, uh, it'll make more fructose. And what are those conditions? Well, first of all, if the body feels as if it's going to be dehydrated or it's starting to become dehydrated, it turns blood sugar, glucose into fructose. Why? because fructose increases uric acid, that tells the body to make fat. Well, why would dehydration want the body to make fat? And it's really quite simple. And to get our answer, we will look at the camel. Now, if you look at a, in your mind's eye, a picture of a camel, what's the most outstanding characteristic that a camel has? It has a hump. And the camel is able to walk across the desert for weeks and weeks, without drinking water by virtue of the fact that it has a hump. Now, what do you think is inside that hump? It isn't water, it's fat. When we metabolize fat, we form two things, carbon dioxide, which we exhale, and free water. So fat, body fat is a reservoir, a resource, for the production of water. That's why when we're dehydrated, our bodies want to make fat because fat can be metabolized into water. So this explains that the the sensor for our dehydration senses our sodium content. When the sodium content starts to rise because we're becoming dehydrated, that triggers this formation of fructose from blood sugar. Glucose turns to fructose, turns to fat. Why fat? Because fat uh, is ter- turns to water. That connects then high sodium to the remedy, making more water. And it explains why people who have a lot of dietary salt tend to gain weight, tend to have higher blood sugars, uh, tend to have higher blood pressure, tend to be diabetic. That's this connection then between raising your blood sodium level by eating a lot of salt and these issues. So. There's a, you know this whole notion that, yeah, dietary fructose is interesting, but we make uh, fructose. Well, we make a lot of fructose when our blood sugar, our glucose is elevated. We make it when we are hypoxic. What does that mean? When our, our oxygenation goes down, like when we have sleep apnea. So we have sleep apnea, we become hypoxic, we make more fructose. And what does that do? Makes us diabetic, increases our body fat. It's why there's a connection between sleep apnea and having a big belly. They play upon each other. So I think it's well beyond just the notion that, you know, the amount of fructose that we are consuming between 1970 and 1990 increased 1000% to the extent that we're just bombarding our bodies uh, every day with uh, incredible amounts of fructose. You know, the average uh, human uh, adult in America will consume about 55 pounds of added sugar each year. Yes. And table sugar is 50% fructose.
0: This is a uh, fascinating stuff. I didn't know any of this, to be honest. And well, I think- I, I'm, I'm hoping I'm giving you new information. That's what it's all about. You are a hundred percent. You are, I mean, where did you discover this link between uric acid and all these health issues that we're suffering with?
1: Well, my focus over the past probably 30 years has been, the relationship between metabolic health and brain health. Mm. And the corollary of that is the relationship between metabolic dysfunction and brain disease, uh, especially as it relates to things like Alzheimer's. We know that's primarily a brain metabolic issue. So anything that relates to metabolism uh, is gonna be interesting to me. It's why I wrote Grain Brain now almost 10 years ago Actually, I began writing it 10 years ago, calling out the relationship between sugar and brain health, because sugar leads to inflammation, a cornerstone of Alzheimer's. Now, this information came to me uh, a couple of years ago uh, while I was running, and I was listening to a podcast, an interview of a researcher, University of Colorado, named Dr. Richard Johnson, and he uh, did a deep dive into fructose metabolism and uric acid, and it was I was uh, thunderstruck by this podcast to the extent that, you know, I'd finished my run, but I had to keep going. So I, I went on the, I went on another run right then just to hear the the rest of the podcast, got home, took a shower and listened to it again. And then as you would expect anyone to do, what did I do? I picked up the phone and I called him Richard Johnson said, hi, I heard this podcast let's chat. And we began a, a friendship and have been uh it's been great. Uh, he's doing so much research and I'm applying his research you know, to our outreach to um, really get this information to as many people as will listen because it has become a very powerful new tool in the toolbox for regaining metabolic health. And let's be very clear. Metabolic problems are at the, you know, are, are, are fundamental. They are uh, the pillars of our most dreaded diseases of our modern times. I talked about that earlier. If we can get our metabolism back in shape, we can get our blood sugars where they belong. If we can get blood pressure back to where it needs to be, lose some body fat, uh, bring our lipids back in line, we are going to have an incredibly lower risk for the major causes of death on our planet. And I believe we will have longer and healthier lives. Mm.
0: Do you talk about the connection between our mind and brain and uric acid and what happens to the mind and brain when we have high elevated levels of uric acid? Absolutely. I mean, uh, the studies, I think, are really quite profound. First, the
1: the cornerstone of Alzheimer's is inflammation. Yep. And now we have uh, identified where it's coming from. I mean, this is a powerful augmentation of the very issue one of the the important issues underlying Alzheimer's. The other central theme of Alzheimer's we call a bioenergetic theme, meaning Mm -hmm. that within the brain cells, the neurons that are fundamental for brain functionality are these little particles called mitochondria that allow those cells to be healthy by giving them energy. Fructose and uric acid threaten the functionality of these mitochondria and pave the way for this energy deprivation that is characteristic and predicts Alzheimer's as much as two to three decades into the future. So what does the research show? Well, one study of 1600 individuals that came out of Japan uh, followed these individuals for 12 years. And every two years, this group of adults, 1600 of them, would have an examination of how well their brains are working. And at the very beginning of the study, they did a test of the uric acid level. That's all they did. Check the uric acid at the beginning of the study, and then we'll follow these individuals for uh, 12 years. And what did they find? They found that at the end of the study, those individuals who at the very beginning, 12 years ago, had the highest uric acid level, had an 80% increased risk of developing dementia, a 55% increased risk of developing full-blown Alzheimer's and a 166% increased risk of developing what is called vascular or mixed dementia. Now, why is this important? It's important because we don't have a treatment for dementia or Alzheimer's, for example. Despite the fact that these new drugs are being approved and put upon us, they don't work. I wish they did. I'd use them. I would have used them for my own father who died of Alzheimer's, but there is no drug that can treat this problem. So when we see these relationships, it's so important that we stand up and get this message out that primarily our brains require a healthy metabolism to work better day to day and also to be resistant to disease in the long run. Fructose consumption itself is associated with shrinkage of the brain, as well as decline in memory function over time. Uh, uric acid, as I've just mentioned, is associated with dramatic uh, increased risk of, of dementia of various kinds. So it's really so important to get this information out. Uh, you know, the notion of, of an Alzheimer's prevention program, um, you know, nobody's interested. We are kind of given the idea that, you know, live your life however you like, you know, sit around the house, eat whatever you want. And uh, if you have a problem, we'll fix it with some magic new silver bullet. It doesn't exist. We have got to focus on brain preservation, preserving the brain's functionality so we can live a long, healthy, cognitively intact life. And now we recognize this incredible connection between our food and specifically fructose and the downstream product, uric acid, as a powerful threat to brain health. So, you know, that's the mission. Let's just get this word out to people, start thinking about how much fructose you may be
0: consuming, get your uric acid level checked and bring it under control. How does someone know, which I think is interesting, How does someone know that they've got high levels of uric acid? Is it mainly looking at whether or not they've just got inflammation all over their body?
1: That's a clue. That's a very powerful clue. If you suffer from um, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, likely your uric acid level is going to be elevated. Uh, But you know, uric acid is a very standard blood test. If people have a, a blood panel done every year as part of their physical, almost always uric acid is included in that. So it might be as simple as calling the doctor and say, hey, what was my uh, BTW? What was my uric acid last time I was in? Uh, that said, uh, you can buy online a uric acid monitor and check your uric acid level, those simple finger stick tests, just like you could check your blood sugar. Uh, I checked mine yesterday, it was 4.7. La- uh, two weeks ago, it was 4.6. So it's, it, which those are good numbers, I'm happy to say, but uh, it is going to be, very soon something people are gonna be very, very uh, much involved with in terms of wanting to know their values. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's already happening. I mean, in Japan, uh, they are actually treating high blood pressure by giving medicines that are designed to lower uric acid. Think about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, We've seen that experimentally here in America, but in, in Japan, that's now how, you know, it's one of the ways that you treat high blood pressure is to lower the trigger, which is uric acid.
0: Fascinating stuff. This is why I think this kind of message needs to get out there because I had no idea about it, and I found it very, very interesting hearing you explaining all this stuff because it is something that can kind of go overlooked by a lot of things. Because I had information for quite some time, I'd struggle with IBS, uh, I had SIBO, I had um, all kinds of things. Kind of looks like I'm, I'm pregnant <laughs> when I have uh, the wrong kinds of foods, but. Maybe I should get my my uric acid checked and see what that actually is. So this is um, this is good for me. Have you had a lot of sort of blowback in in, in a negative sense with this kind of information? Well, not yet. Uh, I, I sure
1: hope I get it though, uh, <laughs> because you know if 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 you put out information and and everybody agrees to it, that isn't new information. Yeah. The only way everybody's going to agree with something and go along with it is if it's old hat. So I think it's really important to be, uh, you know, a little bit forward thinking and then uh, anticipate criticism. Because if I'm being criticized, it's because it challenges people because they didn't know something and it's new to them. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hoping that there will be challenges. There will be blowback. And that's how we move the ball down the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if again, uh, status quo. Ronald Reagan, President Ronald Reagan uh, once said that status quo is a Latin term for the mess we're in. So we have to be, you know, a little bit forward-thinking, right or wrong, uh, you know there, and be able to accept uh, criticism and listen to it and be positively responsive to it in terms of where it may lead you. A lot of times, I learn things from uh, people making comments or or be, you know, being critical about certain science or whatever it may be, and it's so important to be open-eared, if that's the term, open-minded for sure. <laughs> Uh, and, and be able to listen to these ideas because, you know, there are a lot of smart people out there that may have important things to say.
0: I like how you welcome the blowback. I think that's oh my gosh. a sign you of You know, my mission is
1: not to be uh, outside of the box. Yeah, My mission is to make the box bigger. Yeah. So that these, you know, challenging ideas ultimately become you know, gain traction and become uh, ideas that more and more people can leverage. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly 10 years ago with Grain Brain, uh, nobody was really much talking about something called gluten or, or, you know, sugar, dietary sugar being related to things like diabetes and Alzheimer's. But now, of course, you know, that's, you know, this is kind of... The, what the mainstream is is talking about, and you know, I want to say, well, who knew? But uh, who knew? We you know, there was plenty of research back then. Uh, this new book, Drop Acid, that this is represents reviewing more than five hundred peer-reviewed journal articles, citations, studies uh, that really allow us to reach these conclusions. I mean, you know, we've touched upon just a couple of those studies today, but. They're very, very compelling. I mean, one study, uh, a collaborative study from researchers in uh, Japan and Turkey published in 2009 in a journal called Arthritis and Rheumatism, uh, looked at 90,000 individuals, 42,000 men and uh, 48,000 women followed them for eight years. And, you know, the results were really uh, quite uh, astounding. They found that In looking at those who had the highest levels of uric acid at the end of the eight-year period had a 16% increased risk of what we call all-cause mortality, meaning dying from anything. They had a 38% increased risk of what is called cardiovascular mortality, dying of a heart attack, let's say, a 35% increased risk of dying of a stroke, and... What I thought was really a very compelling was that for every point of elevation above seven, so when you get to eight or to nine, for every point, there's an increased risk of death by eight to 13%. Every point you go up from seven. We now know, I mean, it's been talked about for quite a long time that the uh, that normal uric acid level is below seven milligrams per deciliter. Of uh, that said, That only related to gout, such that when people had gout, their goal was to get their uric acid levels below seven. That is nowhere near good enough as it relates to the metabolic issues we're talking about. The increased production of of fat, the elevation of our blood sugar, the elevation of our blood pressure. We wanna keep our uric acid levels at 5.5 milligrams per deciliter or lower. That's the goal, and it can almost always be achieved uh, by taking away the fructose, by reducing alcohol consumption, specifically beer, because it's high in purines and alcohol, and adding in a couple of supplements. For example, quercetin and vitamin C, really powerful uh, in terms of lowering uh, uric acid. Tart cherries as a food. Cherries have been used in gout treatment for decades. Uh, The O in drop acid on the book cover is a cherry. I don't know if you can see that, but you see the cherry right there Mm. falling? We did that because cherries lower uric acid. We've known that, as Mm. I mentioned, for a long, long time. So lifestyle issues, mostly food, are really very relevant and can be utilized to bring that uric acid right down to where it needs to be to offset and to regain metabolic health. Finally, get your blood pressure under control, lose a little more weight, help you with your blood sugar and then reduce your risk for all of these downstream uh, diseases that we talked about.
0: Well, wow. <laughs> I, could, I could listen to you talk for hours. <laughs> this is fascinating stuff for me, but Dr. Perlmutter, I want to be respectful of your time. I've got three final questions for you, if that's okay with yes, you. Sir. Um, We were talking off, off air just a moment ago about COVID-19, the, the current pandemic, and you did mention something which I thought was very interesting. Uh, about how uric acid and COVID-19 do not mix one one bit, one iota. That's what I thought. <laughs> um, what happens if you've got too much uric acid and you have COVID-19 at the same time? Does that mean your side effects are a lot worse?
1: Yes. As a matter of fact, one recent study uh, demonstrated that if you enter the hospital with a high uric acid level, your risk of entering the intensive care unit is increased about threefold. Risk of getting on a ventilator is increased about threefold and risk of death is increased about 2.85 fold as well. And it stands to reason because elevated uric acid compromises the balance of our immune system, sets the stage for inflammation. We've talked about that today quite extensively and really what gets people into Big trouble with COVID is this cytokine inflammation storm. So that is augmented uh, by uric acid. And uh, therefore, you know, (laughs) uh, yeah, it's great to be vaccinated. It's great to be careful, wear a mask, et cetera. But get your uric acid level under control. Get your immune system back to where it needs to be balanced and get by looking at your uric acid. So again, this is a blood test that people may have already had You could certainly get it done at your doctor's office. But uh, I know that at least here in America, but I think around the world now, uh, a uric acid monitor is something you can buy online easily enough and start to check and see where you are.
0: Thank you for that. That's um, useful information again. (laughs) So where do you want people to get a copy of your brand new book? It's called Drop Acid. It's available, I believe, very, very soon. So where do you want people to go and get a copy of it? I, wherever they can find it, <laughs> I guess is the right answer.
1: But uh, Amazon uh, has it. Uh, all major bookstores are going to have it. Um, the, the URL, the, the, if you want to read more about the book, go on Amazon. But also dropacidbook.com, give you all the information that you need. What do you hope for
0: people to get out of this book the most? A tool.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yet another important new tool in the toolbox uh, that'll help them along with you know keeping an eye on on blood sugar making sure that we exercise paying attention to how long and and we get quality sleep for example yet another tool to rein in our metabolic health uh, and keep us you know lower our risk for disease and hopefully increase our not just lifespan but our health span so uh it's a tool it's yet another very important tool emerging new tool uh, for people to
0: to accomplish these goals, I for one cannot wait to get my hands on a copy and officially start reading it and sharing it like crazy, just like Grain Brain, which helped me about gluten. <laughs> I'm I'm not the best these days, I'll admit. Doctor Phil, my probably should be better at it, but cookies are my weakness uh, here in Australia. Like there's some great cookies, New York style cookies. So I'll have and high fructose levels. I'll admit, I admit, I'm just making. I'm human. <laughs> right. I probably should get a handle on it. And everybody is
1: right. Everybody
0: is. But I think
1: when you start to look at your lifestyle choices through the lens of uric acid, <clears throat> takes on a different. It takes on a different appearance. Yeah. Because you start thinking about all the things in the course of the day that are threatening that uric acid level that you can modify. Now, for you with your IBS and your SIBO history you would really want to rein in inflammation. So I'm, yeah. I'm going to tell you that your uric acid is very likely elevated and probably with all due respect, significantly so. Uric acid, we know, changes gut bacteria to increase the prevalence of uh, pro-inflammatory strains. It increases the permeability of the gut lining, which also then increases inflammation. And in fact, a, a procedure called fecal microbial transplant, whereby fecal material from a person who does not have an inflammatory disorder put into the gut of people with a gout, for example, has led to significant improvement, reduction in their gout flare ups. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that fecal microbial trans- transplant or FMT is used for inflammatory bowel disease as well. So, you know, this huh. tends to focus our attention on the gut bacteria which, as I just mentioned, are influenced by uric acid.
0: That is interesting. I'm just trying to picture that. <laughs> uh, I probably should go get myself checked um, for my uric acid levels. I, I think you're right. I think they are a little bit elevated, um, which I need to get down. But your information today has no doubt given me that extra push that I needed. <laughs> you got. <bet. laughs> Thank you for that. My final question for you, Dr. Perlmutter, this is my all-time favorite question. Okay. I ask all my guests at the very end. It's a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll just call it magic (laughs) for the sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life?
1: I would say that I was a good father and a good husband, primarily. Uh, and that, secondly, that I was a good doctor. Doctor means teacher. That's what the word actually means. And, you know, it gets to what we talked about at the very beginning of our time together success was identifying my particular skill set and then exploiting it as best I could. My skill set happens to be as a doctor, as a teacher. And that I was able to get out as much information to as many people as would listen, uh, giving them ideas, tools, uh, techniques, uh, so that they too could, could join me in our quest to not only have a long lifespan, but a long health span. We can live a long time, but be healthy uh, during those years as well.
0: Well, in my opinion, you're a great teacher. Thank you so much for all the incredible work that you're doing out there in the world and for your time today, for all the information, the wisdom, everything, and for joining me today on this Storybox podcast. It was a lot of fun. Great. I enjoyed it. It was terrific. Thank you. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guests today. is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh